Welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg. Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter and the managing director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins us from Cape Town this time round. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest. Tara, you're getting closer and closer to me. Good to speak to you. Yes, I speak to you now from Cape Town, Karen. Many of the beaches, of course, including not very far from where you are, they're going to be closed during the Christmas holiday season in a bid to try and stem the spread of the coronavirus, the second wave, which we're certainly feeling here. How does it feel coming to Africa from Europe? Well, I have to say the travel itself is quite daunting, complete with tests, um, having to fly with masks on. Um, but I have been immensely impressed by the, uh, the track and trace and the uh, rigid adherence to masks and sanitising and all of that. Well, Tara, moving on, we've got an excellent guest on our podcast a little later on. Uh, he's one of Forbes magazine's top prospects, the Kenyan food entrepreneur and founder of Twiga Foods, Peter Njonjo. More on that a little bit later. First, though, let's remind ourselves of some of the stories which have been in the news since our last podcast. Verdicts in what had been billed as a trial for the history books nearly six years after the January 2015 attacks that targeted the cartoonists of Charlie Hebdo, a municipal police officer, and a Paris kosher supermarket. A range of guilty verdicts. Several hundred schoolboys kidnapped in northern Nigeria last Friday have arrived in their state capital after being freed from the neighboring state where it's thought they were held by gunmen in a forest. The boys, all 344 of them, according to the governor of Katsina. The writer John Le Carre has died in the UK at the age of 89. Most famous for stories of complex Cold War intrigue, he's responsible for best-selling novels, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, Tinker Taylor Soldier Utah Spy, Senator Mitt Romney is demanding a response from the US government to the widespread data breach across its federal agencies. Senator Romney also blasted President Trump for undercutting blame on Russia for the cybersecurity attack. Well, picking up on one of those stories, Tara, the security threat in Nigeria posed by Boko Haram, who we heard in the news clip there, have claimed responsibility for the abduction of hundreds of young boys in the northwestern state of Kasina. The militant group's been expanding its reach beyond the traditional northeastern corner of Nigeria, and it does seem increasingly that a military solution alone could actually be driving more people into the arms of the militants than trying to solve the problem there. Interestingly, there have been reports just in the past few weeks by civil society groups that they've conducted surveys among ordinary citizens from Nigeria, Niger, Chad and Cameroon, where Boko Haram has mounted attacks. And they've asked people whether it's now time to start engaging with the militants. And large numbers of people have actually said yes, it was. And of course, there are precedents, aren't there, for this? When we talk about Boko Haram and those attacks, remember the abductions of the Chibok girls in Borno State in 2014. Despite a big military presence, it was actually only after negotiations that the authorities were able to secure the release of the girls. It is a complex area and it's not a zero-sum game, I don't think, but it is about building community engagement and understanding really the underlying reasons why people are drawn or coerced into joining extremist groups. I think I agree um, in, to some extent because the dialogue 
between at community level may really be the only option because the security apparatus and the security response has been a dramatic failure. That failure has meant that Nigeria has lost control of an extensive part of its borders. There were massive hopes that uh, that the Buhari government would uh, reform the state security apparatus, which he has failed to do. And uh, millions and millions of dollars every year are, in budget terms, are allocated to the service chiefs of the Army, Air Force and Intelligence Services. And you have to ask where it has all gone. Yes, and, you know, the basic rule of counterinsurgency, not to sound too pompous on this, but is actually to talk to people. It's communicating and it's trying to seize the message, propaganda of the deed, and, um, and try and understand the drivers for why people do sort of sign up to these groups, whether it's willingly or, or under coercion. Well, it's interesting, whilst we're talking about security in the region, Tara, um, can we talk briefly about Mozambique? There's a, an insurgency raging in the north in uh, Cabo Delgado. Um, it's an area that I know you've talked about quite a lot because Africa's largest liquefied natural gas investment's been made there, isn't it? But the potential for spillover of that conflict is triggering warnings from a senior U.S. envoy that it could destabilise the entire SADC, that's the Southern Africa Development Community region. We've already seen it spilt over into Tanzania, and up until recently, this was just a, a Mozambican problem. Do you remember we had reports back in October, wasn't it, of attacks in a Tanzanian village? I think it was beheadings. It was, it was, it was awful. So throwing forward to next year, I think we can expect to see SADC heads of state meet in January to discuss the situation. And certainly Cyril Ramaphosa, the president here in South Africa, is extremely concerned. He's attended meetings just a few weeks ago uh, to try and... I suppose, galvanise efforts to try and, and, and deal with this insurgency, which obviously threatens huge amounts of people on the ground, but also huge amounts of investment. You know, I think the really concerning thing is, the, is the, that these attacks are very much targeted against local people. They are very brutal. They don't actually threaten the, the LNG plant or its investment, which is very well secured. But what is brutal and cruel about it is that it is targeted against the you know very poor people living surrounding the LNG investment areas to, yeah, to some extent. Yeah. That's the ambient and, risk, isn't it? It's the environment yes, which we're operating. Yes, it's in it's surrounding. I mean, I certainly know where it does affect the you know the development of the LNG and so on is that most things now have to be flown into the region rather than driven by car. It also raises the spectrum of Emerson Menangagwa was talking about going into uh, Mozambique to try and help. So it allows for all sorts of regional plays that I think may be problematic. Exactly. And I think that's why SADC is kind of moved to try and at least talk about it and put it much, much higher up on the agenda. But you're right, it risks becoming a sort of proxy war, doesn't it, between other, yes. other rival yes. states? Yeah. And also, you one needs to look at the influences behind the insurgents themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Corruption. I know that's something you're very keen to talk about. Yes, always keen to talk about corruption, also especially when it's actually a good news story. And I, I sort of think it's been a, a, a COVID year has been a most interesting year. And we've seen government after government actually spending, having to open the coffers to actually protect the population from the ravages of this awful virus. 
And obviously in lots of countries, in Kenya, in South Africa, in Nigeria, we have seen the levels of corruption around, uh, around the release of funds increase dramatically. But there has also been some significant um, clawbacks against corruption, victory in the battle against corruption. In South Africa, the, the National Power Authority, ESCOM, has already recovered in excess of a billion pounds from global consultancy M McKinsey and so significant amounts from the other professional services company Deloitte. In addition, it's instituted a claim for some 3.8 billion against members of the Gupta family who were involved here in state capture. And I see a claim has also been instituted against PwC. So the international professional services companies really are rubbing shoulders in this dreadful case. And, and really, really hats off to the Special Investigations Unit, the, the hawks here that have really been trying to go after this. They've been like a rottweiler with a bone, haven't they? Yes, they have had some considerable successes, but it is also the other avenue that ESCOM itself, ESCOM's board has instituted these claims against these corporates and is actually clawing back some of that um, uh, ill-gotten fees, shall we say. One of the other great continuing success stories is the Angolan government's pursuit of Isabel dos Santos and a $5, million, $5 billion claim that they have against her uh, for, and the dos Santos family for alleged corruption, for having um, misused po political power to make a personal fortune. Tara, there's a lot to talk about, but, you know, over the course of the year, have you been left with a sense of the high point of this year? Is there one country that leaps out as being kind of the, the, good, the good case study, if you like? You know how we journalists like our case studies. Well, yes, it has to be Ghana again. And as we've talked about before, Ghana is, to me, always the country that is the beacon, in a way, for where the rest of the continent is, is going. And yet again, Ghana has delivered successful and peaceful, largely peaceful elections. The incumbent has won again, even if it's with a smaller majority in Parliament, which will make the next few years interesting. But yes, um, a successful election to close the year with. When you compare it with, um, with neighbouring Côte d'Ivoire, where uh, elections resulted in uh, you know, something like in excess of 100 deaths and 20,000 people moving into neighbouring countries as refugees. It is a considerable success and Ghana's economy looks as though it's set to bounce back from COVID into the new year um, really, really well. So, you know, a bit of a, a, bit of a shining light. You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Now, our guest is a dynamic young man from the world of food, a former East African Coca-Cola executive voted among the top 100 business leaders in Africa by Forbes Afrique. Peter Njonjo is an impressive figure. He's the founder of Twiga Foods, the Kenyan business-to-business -business food distribution platform which is disrupting the way small storeholders in cities like Nairobi access produce from farms. 
bypassing the middleman and using the latest digital technology to force prices down. Peter, welcome to the Ark Insider. It's great to speak to you. You're talking to us from Nairobi, is that right? Yes, I am. Hi, Karen. Hi, Tara. Very nice to speak to you. Well, welcome. And it's it's great. I know you've been extremely busy, so we're, we're really excited to have you join us today. Peter, we know that Kenya is one of the most digitally dynamic countries in the world. Um, it's my former home. So I was very excited to see this sort of unravelling, if you like, or I, I'm very interested to see this um, come of age, if you like. But Twiga Foods as a concept was triggered by the humble banana. When we started out the business, we actually thought of ourselves as an export entity. So, uh, so my co-founder and I, uh, Grant, uh, his name is Grant Brook, he's, uh, he's American. Uh, we went out to Dubai and, uh, and uh, basically got a large order to supply bananas. And then we came back to Kenya and we realized that we couldn't ship a single banana because our bananas here were very expensive and did not meet the quality requirements. And that for us was a great shock. So, uh, so I told Grant, hey, you know, we've gone to Dubai, uh, we've spent so much money and, you know, how do we make this work? So we decided that we should try and uh, uh, sell the bananas locally. And what we realized is that we're solving a large inefficiency that is created by mediation of an industry due to fragmentation on both sides of the equation. Fragmentation of farmers and fragmentation of retailers. Mm -hmm. And that then became the basis upon which we built the whole business. Yeah, and basically using technology to, to join those two elements together. So what we do is uh, we're disintermediating the market. And the way we're doing that is uh, by eliminating the we'll various layers. We'll have to layers. explain to our, our listeners what. We, <laughs> that's a jargon yeah, word. That Even I'm like learning. Oh, yes. Jargon, jargon. Alert. Gonna jargon, alert. Nino, 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 the jargon police. Disintermediations. <laughs> All right. So I'll explain what that means. It means we're yeah. taking the layers off the market. And, and the reason why uh, that, is a, that is a very, very important point is because, you know, Kenya today spends about 55% of our disposable income on food as a population. That's what the U.S. was spending uh, about 150 years ago in the 1870s. South Africa spends about 16%. So we're very, very inefficient. And what you find is that the difference between Kenya and South Africa is that 60% of your retail is controlled by a handful of retailers the big supermarkets. Yeah. But in Kenya, it's very, very fragmented. Nairobi gets its food through 180,000 retailers. So when you have that level of fragmentation, it creates a lot of inefficiency. And that's what we're basically solving with technology. And as we then remove layers of inefficiency, uh, we then bring down the cost of food. Can I ask the, the, the money question in there? So where do you make money? How does, it, uh, how does your scheme make money? So we do it two ways. First thing is um, when you look at, for example, uh, fresh produce, uh, the reason why uh, we don't have large commercial uh, production of produce locally is because there's really no structured access to the domestic market. Unlike, for example, South Africa. For example, in South Africa, I understand there's one company that controls 80% of tomato production. So you can never have that level of scale and efficiency when you have this level of fragmentation. So because of that, what we're doing now is that today we serve about 30,000 retailers a month. And because of that, we're now able to aggregate that demand and start working with commercial farmers that uh, allows us to be uh, more productive. The difference in productivity between fragmented smallholder farmers and commercial farmers is like day and night. In some instances, 
you're actually improving the productivity four or five times. And that means that when you have that level of improvement in productivity, then there's so much value that sits in the value chain where you can then share that with the consumer through lower pricing and also with margin on the farming side and on the distribution side. And then on the, uh, what I'd call the grocery, uh, we just have layers and layers of distributors uh, just due to the lack of scale, due to the fragmentation of a market. So now we just move straight from the manufacturer straight to the retailer. Who do you cut out in this arrangement, Peter? We cut out uh, basically all the players uh, in the value chain. So let me just explain the banana value chain. Yeah. Most, of the, yeah. most of the farmers are smallholder farmers. So they never have as more than uh, three, four bunches uh, in a week. So, but the three, four bunches are not economical to take to market. So the first thing that you have is a, is a local broker who's able to aggregate this maybe on the back of a small pickup. And what happens is that he then takes it to market, which is a central collection point. Now, he doesn't have the capital or the resources to fill up a large truck. So you find another layer of brokers who are then able to aggregate the produce and fill a truck. But then, then that truck comes to the city and it gets into a wholesale market. The person who's taking the truck to the wholesale market doesn't have the relationships in the market to sell the product. So then relies on a, another layer of brokers who then allow, uh, who are then able to sell the product. Then from there, those brokers then figure out how the product then gets to the retailers. So when you look at that whole chain now, what we do is that we just deal with farmers and go straight to the retailer. So this whole four or five layers of, uh, of intermediaries in the middle are essentially eliminated. Do you get accused, sorry to interject here, but do you get accused, Peter, of basically then doing people out of their jobs? Because, of course, you know, it's, it's very labour-intensive, what you've just described, and, um, you know, as well as having people who are the middlemen, and there's also this issue of kitukidogo, that maybe everybody's taking a little bit extra, this wonderful word in Kenya, which is, of course, not unique to Kenya. But, you know, don't you get accused that effectively, um, in, a, in a country which desperately needs jobs, there are a lot of people that are going to lose out. If you create non-productive jobs, then what you're dooming the country is to a cycle of poverty. I just want to give you an example of the Netherlands. Um, and, and the reason why I'm talking about the Netherlands is because we've been working a lot with uh, agronomy experts from, uh, from, the, Dutch, uh, from the Dutch country. And, and, and what you find is that in the 1900s, Netherlands was predominantly smallholder farmer driven. And uh, what has happened in the last 100 years is that they've transitioned to large farms. And they become the most productive farming country in the world. They have the highest yield per square meter. But the number of farmers has reduced. But the key thing is that the amount of money that people in the country also spend on food has reduced also dramatically. So it means that, yes, I might not be a farmer, but now food is very, very affordable. I have money for something else. And over time, you start creating other industries that will create more productive jobs. And I think that's the way countries should develop. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, and I guess it's a way of, of linking the informal sector to the formal sector as well. Definitely. And, and the way we're looking at it is we're starting to provide uh, services through our platform uh, that were previously not accessible to the class of uh, retailers that we deal with. Uh, just to give you an example, you know, today we generate about a million records of data every month. And uh, using uh, advanced analytics, so we, we're, we're big on uh, big data. And, and now what we're happening, like for example, uh, three, day, three days ago, we announced uh, the launch of a micro-insurance product where if uh, a retailer falls sick, 
then uh, their, their income is protected for the period that they are hospitalized. That's something that is a big drain on working capital in the informal retail. That's a huge value add. Um, with the data that we collect, we have a better understanding of somebody's credit rating than most financial institutions. Now we've created a financial marketplace where banks are now integrating into us and lending directly to our retailers of the back of the data that we're producing. And that again starts providing a bit of formalization on the retail. And these retailers now soon will be able to sell any type of product, digital product on the platform. Can I ask a question? I get so excited when people talk about data and algorithms that I have to surprise myself because I'm not a digital native. But, you know, I was reading on your website about sort of this masses of data that you're collecting, but also some really granular stuff from, for example, some of the um, geographic based sort of um, data that you're able to acquire, which tells you, you know, which roads are passable, which areas you can get to quickly, and how do you maximize sort of your time when you've got wheels so on the ground? So on our efficiency side, which is what you're talking about, uh, what you find is that most of these retailers are in places that are really not well mapped. So for example, you know, you, you're using Google Maps, and then just before you get to the retailer, you realize that the road was dug up two days ago. <laughs> and it's no longer possible. So where do you pass? So what, the, so what it allows us to do is that with the analytics that we have, it allows us to then take care of such nuances and continuously calculate. How do we then become very efficient in terms of how we distribute the product? So what we look at is the volume of a product that the customer has ordered, the weight of a product. We look at the clustering of the customers who've ordered the product. How far are they from each other? And the state of a road, in terms of a physical state of a road, and on top of that, what's a traffic situation at any particular point in time? So when you integrate all that, what it does is that it starts bringing down your cost to operate. And, and for us, that's been a huge benefit in terms of how we use data. And then also in terms of how we enhance the experience of our customers, it means that now it's easier to figure out you know, what you ordered last time. Uh, we're able to start seeing relationships between different, different products that are being ordered together. We're able to make recommendations to you of products that you might actually need in your shop. So it allows us to then start getting very, very granular in terms of how we can then make recommendations at a very individualized level to our customers, something that was not possible a few, a few years ago. Yours is a, is a story of a, of a rapid startup, um, a, a rapid fastly growing startup and tell us a little bit about that journey you know was it um how easy was it for you to raise the i see that you've actually managed to secure quite considerable funding from uh from various international sources but tell us a little bit about that journey the early days are very tough and and the reason why the early days are tough is because um if you look at uh, funds, funds are trying to look at various startups, and they want to figure out, you know, what startup is de-risked? What startup actually gives me the highest probability of success? Because they also have considerations that they're having on their side of the fence. Now, what made, it, what made us uh, uh, investable in the early days is because I was able to put in a significant amount of money myself. Uh, in the early days, uh, my wife and I, we actually sold our matrimonial home and invested the proceeds in the in the business, she, and that's a type of. Style. She's the one who suggested, I'm actually. <laughs> so, and uh, and what you find is that when when uh, when folks out there see the level of commitment that uh, that you've had, 
the other thing also that uh, was, was very, very important in the early days was around the, the talent that we had. Because you can talk about an ambitious plan that you want to execute, but it's different to actually have the talent to pull it off. So, and uh, we were very focused in terms of the talent that we built in the very, very early days. And then the third piece, which is very, very critical for us, was around the governance. So I'm very big on integrity, I'm very big on uh, governance, and uh, by putting those structures in place very early on, uh, made us uh, investable and attractive. Um, and that's, that's basically what I would say. And just on the governance front, what in particular did you, uh, what did you focus on in terms of governance, in terms of your corporate structure or policies or a bit of both? Both. So in terms of uh, corporate structure, there was, uh, you know, clearly well-defined roles between uh, everybody. Everybody understood what it is that they were supposed to deliver. And uh, if you then uh, spoke to various people in the organization, you felt that there was uh, a unity of purpose and a unity of vision. That's very, very important because as part of due diligence, what you want to do is um, assess whether there's coherence. In, uh, in the understanding of uh, what the expectations are. Um, then the, the second piece also was around policies. Uh, very early on, for example, we had an anti-bribery policy. So it means that even if you were caught out by the police uh, on the side of a road, you should not bribe. You should just call the company lawyer. Uh, then he had a motorbike. Then he'd get there very, very quickly and, uh, and essentially uh, deal with the police. And uh, what it did is that it started building a sense of uh, governance and integrity in terms of we want it to be different from everybody else. And it paid off. For example, you know, for us to receive a payment, uh, the, the, the investment from uh, the likes of Goldman Sachs or uh, the International Finance Corporation, you know, we essentially had to um, uh, undergo the, what do you call the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act audit yes. or the UK yeah. Anti-Bribery Act audit. And, um, and there are no findings. So, and I think that's, that's what we really pride ourselves in, in terms of uh, having governance and having policies that uh, ensure that even when you're surrounded, or when, even when you're in an environment that does not espouse the values around governance or, um, or uh, maybe just uh, proper, gov let's say proper governance, or, or not, not having any uh, extensive corruption, that you can yeah. be an island even in that type of environment. And I think that for us is what we really pride ourselves in. And your model, I understand that your, the model is clearly, uh, once governance is established, it makes it ter it's terrifically exportable. And I gather from reading your profile that you, are, you actually have plans for expansion of the model across the continent. Uh, is that so? Yes, it is. Actually, uh, last week I was in uh, Cote d'Ivoire. So uh, I spent uh, some time in the, in the markets in, uh, in uh, Abidjan, in uh, Buake. Um, so very, very similar. The other, the other advantage that I have as an entrepreneur in this space is that uh, through my experience in Coca-Cola, I was uh, head of uh, the business in uh, East Africa for six years. And, uh, and I was uh, the head of a business in Western Central Africa for three years. So I used to live out in Lagos, Nigeria. So I've directly managed about 40 countries for the Coca-Cola company across the continent. So I have a good understanding of the continent. That's why I feel very confident about uh, maybe expanding into uh, Abidjan uh, because uh, I used to manage a market and I also know the size of the opportunity in some of those places. So we will, we will, we will expand into, uh, into West Africa. 
and uh, and also hopefully we will also continue expanding into uh, East Africa. Was there any resistance among some of the informal traders becoming part of this more formal arrangement? Because is there a, is there a revenue consideration that you know all of a sudden they're on the map? Um, can the Kenya Revenue Service start chasing after them? I'm just wondering if there's that sort of disincentive that you had to try and um, not get really. Around. Uh, just want to give you an example of. Uh, uh, the city of Kisumu, uh, because we've started expanding outside of Nairobi. So we're, we're now in six cities across Kenya. This is the border with Uganda, just to give people some geographic reference. It's the, the western side. So I can see you still have your geography. Uh... <laughs> just indulge me. <laughs> and uh, what was interesting is when we mapped out the city of Kisumu, uh, we had about uh, 2,900 retailers. Uh, within a uh, five kilometer radius of where we had our distribution center. And uh, within uh, six weeks, 65% uh, of all those retailers had ordered from us. So it's, uh, so it's just about going in there and having the value proposition centered on price. So what you need to do is take out all unnecessary costs from your value chain and pass on some benefit to the retailers. And that's all they need to start ordering from you and build a habit. And because it's just so convenient. Because think about it this way. If you're not on the Twigger platform as a, as a retailer, you then have to wake up at 4 a.m. to go to the local wholesale market to buy your produce so you have enough produce to, order the, to sell the next day. And now you can do all this by sitting in your shop, ordering through your phone, have it delivered to you within 24 hours and uh, at a lower price. So that's a very, very strong value proposition. And that's what we're using to drive recruitment. Just to close off, I think there's one question that we haven't actually been asking people recently, but we will ask you, as particularly as we sort of end, uh, this is the end of the first year of COVID, shall we say, and we have been asking all of our podcast guests, what one thing has this pandemic taught you or what have you, what personal response to it has, what has it meant to you, this COVID crisis? Well, I think for me, the COVID period has uh, created a lot of reflection. And uh, what I came out of it with is, um, I really can't change what happens to me, but I have a lot of power in terms of how I react to what happens to me. So be it with family, be it with relationships, be it with a business. And, uh, and I think the key thing is that to establish areas of influence and uh, focus on those areas. And uh, because essentially, if, you, if you're not able to appreciate it from that perspective, then um, we've seen a lot of people get overwhelmed and, uh, and a lot of people lose hope. And, and losing hope during this period is the most difficult thing that one can do because it's very hard to recover from that. So, and I think for me, that's a, that's a big lesson. Understanding what's within my realm and what it is that I can do to make a difference. Kabisa. Sorry, I have to throw in a Swahili expression there. But yeah, that's completely on point. You're grinning at me, Peter. I know I've probably massacred the language. But actually, what you're saying is very profound. You are still laughing. <laughs> but it is. It's very profound what you say. And it's been really interesting to get the feedback from, from all the guests we've had over the past year, isn't it, uh, Tara? And I think it's right that we mark this time. We mark this time with our podcast and we mark this time... Uh, you know, because it's so unusual and it's impacted on all of our lives to such an extent. But Peter, thank you very much. And, uh, and we will uh, be calling on you for a revisit to our podcast in the year ahead to see how 
the expansion to West Africa is going. Thank you so much, Tara. Thank you so much, Karen. It's been a pleasure. It's been great talking to you, Peter. Thank you very much. Really, really, and very, very best of luck in the months ahead. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at ARC produces the ARC Briefing, country reports on the region that take a deep dive into these issues every single month. You can get more information about a subscription to these at info at africarisconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now and a happy new year. <laughs>